0: Walt Disney. Yes. Beloved beloved figure of our of our pop culture. That's how they get you.
1: Yada yada yada. She eventually causes her own husband to be burned to death.
0: And that makes me so happy on cold nights. It especially ended badly for the idiot Peckerwoods.
1: Have a bottle oh, of wow. scotch. Okay, that's twice that he's mentioned redheads. <laughs> it is un-American to get in the way of our freedom to restrict people's freedoms. That
0: was the okay. Title. Yeah. Okay. But, I know plenty about but, these things. But,
1: I love me some Bobby Drake. Yeah. Well, if that's all we've got, then we're dirt. being really lazy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Y'all bone.
1: You can literally poke a hole in it
0: as soon as someone
1: gets pneumonia. Well, I'm it not is. as old as you.
0: Well, haha, motherfucker, I got a wizard. To the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history and English teacher here in Northern California. And um, in recent uh, news, my my son is showing um, a a very strong talent for logical thinking. Like I, I am now, I am now watching the development of his of his ability to follow a train of logic. The the cognitive development is is you know coming along. He's four now, and uh, the other day uh, we were on our way to the park, and uh, I was telling him, I was pushing pushing him in his wagon, and his wagon has it's it's one of the you know kind of fold up ones that you know you can you can fold out. And it has a it has a sunshade over the top of it, and um, I was mentioning to him that you know it's a good thing that he had the sunshade because I'd get in big trouble if he got sunburned. Mommy would not be happy with me, and of course my son has a, a complexion very similar to his mother's, uh, which is to say it's German, so it's pale. So the boy the boy could get sunburned so so this is a worry and i mentioned this to him and this then got us into a, into a conversation about, oh yeah well you know uh and, and i mentioned putting on sunscreen and he said well you know would uh would rory need to put on sunscreen and and rory is one of his stuffed toys it's an ankylosaurus named rory and um i said well you know i mean if he was going to be out in the sun he might want to put some on and we went through talking about the rest of his stuffies and he said yeah no we'd want to make sure they all put on sunscreen cuz could. we wouldn't want them to get sunburned and then he said well and and then and then he he left one of a, a notable one of the cast of characters off of his list and I said well you know what about habanero he said well habanero doesn't need sunscreen i said well why not he said well because habanero breathes fire habanero for those of you who aren't here with me and my son habanero is a dragon uh that was that was a gift from one of his godmothers uh over christmas uh bright red and fire breathing dragon and uh, he said well you know he doesn't need sunscreen because he's fire so he doesn't he, he wouldn't get a sunburn and i blinked a couple of times and i went yeah well you're right i guess that that does make perfect sense and that's, that's the most nerdy uh, example of this that I can think of right now off the top of my head. Um, but just a few minutes before we started recording, um, I was listening to my wife having a conversation with him in his room, uh, reasoning with him about why he doesn't need to be afraid of the dark in his room, uh, touching on such points as well. Okay, if that looks scary in the dark, just think of, think for a minute. If that were to actually jump down off of your shelf, would it really be able to do anything to you? Okay, are you the biggest thing in this room? And and sounding like there was progress being made there. So you know, it's 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 a remarkable phase to be watching, and 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 trying to figure out how to leverage it for good. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I've got going on. How about you? Who are you and and what's happening in your life right now?
1: Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I am a Latin and U.S. history teacher uh, up here in Northern California. And uh, most recently, I I had to reschedule something for my daughter because I blew it on the scheduling. Mm. Uh, So there was a bit of a lesson there in... um, she has every right to be angry. She doesn't have to forgive me for her disappointment. And uh, it's still a reality that we have to deal with. And it's it's a disappointment we have to re- re- deal with. And essentially, I just double booked two things. And so then I rescheduled it. And unfortunately, the, the next date that she can have all her friends over to start them on session zero for d d isn't for several weeks uh, because everybody's off at camps and doing things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, she, she spent a day being disappointed and, and frustrated yeah. and uh, finding ways to express it without being an asshole about it, too, uh, which is really, you know, that's that's the, the goal of all parents is that their children don't grow yes. up to, to do that. Now, yeah. um, I, I must say, uh, I had several ideas as the elder parent uh, of yes. the group, uh, yes. but not the elder parent of the group.
0: yeah yeah change the words yeah yeah. (laughs) whatever whippersnapper what do you got for me
1: but uh you have a golden opportunity to do a couple things number one um next time he talks about that with habanero and you get the logic thing take him to the next step and then create stories with him like i don't know if you put him down for naps but let's talk let's tell a story about habanero and how he saved somebody from a hot planet Okay. go you know and stuff like that and then uh as far as the you know he's still scared of the dark um i did hear a turn of phrase and i don't know if it was uh ed phrasing or if it was a direct quote but uh you don't have to be afraid of any of the dark in your room implies (laughs) that there's a lot Mm -hmm. of darkness elsewhere uh one ought to be so if that's where you're going i i can understand that because it'll keep him in his room at night uh but <laughs> in theory oh, uh using can, using
0: using parenting for evil right uh. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh one uh, you know just maybe you know uh, also you know i love the are you the biggest one in your room uh but there's great courage in little things too and, this is uh, true. and i and i think it's a great place to start of yeah. like, you know, and, and I, I remember I've turned it around where my son was afraid of something. I'm like, dude, it's so much smaller than you. It's afraid of you. Mm-hmm. And then he immediately started empathizing with it. Mm-hmm. Now in fairness, my son is, is, uh, forever. Like, I mean, he writes letters, uh, of remembrance for fish that died, mm-hmm. um, that he doesn't even know their names yeah. because it was his sister's fish. So, yeah, you know, that that's my boy. But it is a, a cool thing to do is like, hey, you know, I, I'm a big believer of turning your weaknesses into your strengths. What's that? You're afraid of the dark. So is that other thing in the room. And you need to show it how you get through your fear, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. put your fear away, not be brave. Yeah. But how do you get through your fear? And because and I've, I've we've talked about this before in the unsolicited yeah. advice section of the show. Uh <laughs> <laughs> where uh you give a kid something to do and suddenly mm-hmm. they're able to pull themselves through a thing so yeah anyway there's the unsolicited no. advice yeah. of of this episode yeah so i appreciate it yeah absolutely but you're you really dude especially given your love of storytelling mm. make that boy a bard. let him multi-class yeah so
0: yeah that's uh, that's worth trying definitely yeah. speaking so of bards, yeah speaking of Uh, Storytellers. Um we we were talking about um the most benign upper class twit in literary history.
1: Yeah. You referenced Garp actually when I did when referencing him. I ended up re-watching that movie last night, and the amount of sense memories that came flooding into my head, uh, like I mean, she wears a sweater later in the movie, like his Mm -hmm. wife does, that my mom had. Mm -hmm. Because fashion was, you know, fairly ubiquitous in 1980, 81. Um, There are so many lines that I can remember what the carpet in my house smelled like. Their bedspread was the same one that my grandma had. So I remembered watching Fraggle Rock because they had HBO and petting that 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 comforter. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember uh, various scenes and what it smelled like the secondary smoke that was in the house, because <laughs> uh, it was the 80s. Um, and and just, I remember, you know, my mom's haircut, the way my dad looked, just everything. I remembered oh, so wow. much. It really? Yeah. Oh, God. And I didn't realize how, uh, I'm going to say formative, but I don't know in any way that it was formative, but how, I don't know, companion piece it was. Powerfully
0: to affecting yeah, I guess so. Uh,
1: to my childhood, it was it was quite mm-hmm. something. Uh, I was I was looking at it because I was like, oh, maybe I can share this with my kids. I will not you be sharing don't. this
0: with my kids. Yeah. Jesus Christ. No. Wow. Not not, um, not youngster appropriate. Yeah. No. And
1: and I told my yeah. girlfriend about it and she'd never seen the movie. She'd only ever read the book, to which I said, uh... there's a book uh, because <laughs> I have a brand to protect of being not particularly literate. <laughs> so. With that in mind, let's talk about L. Frank Baum. Yeah. <laughs> so so as I told you last time, um, the second edition sold out um, at 15,000 copies. So like yeah. first edition was 10,000, second edition is 15,000. So if anybody claims that they have those, you have literally one of just a few thousands. Um, what I found fascinating about Oz, uh, the story of Oz, is that ultimately at its, it's very, very basics you know kind of like um there are certain movies where like if you break it down you're like oh this is actually just a love story and people are like oh jesus christ that's not a love story it's like well it has this and this and this and you're like oh my god it is you know that kind of thing um or you know when i you know somebody explains you know harry potter is just you know lord of the rings and or star wars
0: yeah you know or any any campbellian you know hero myth
1: yeah so Oz is a Faye story. Okay. Um, It's also an allegory of an American history. Uh, Okay. And it's wild to me that a man who is so uninvolved with the world that he lived in, who lived in all the places where big shit was happening, remember? Oh, yeah. He's he's at a dinner party uh, or a Christmas-type party uh, shortly after Chester Arthur becomes president in the same state that Arthur was from. And there's no mention of any of that. Mm -hmm. he's in chicago during the haymarket affair and stuff like that and there's no mention of any of that um and so he's so uninvolved in the world that he lives in that he's he's writing a story that's escaping from it still like what what need
0: does he have to he already got that he 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 yeah he by by dint of his privilege um he he escaped from it already yeah
1: right so like there's no overwhelming psychological need and he's not dialed into the zeitgeist in any way that I've been able to find. Um, And at the same time that he's here for all these things, he's not present for all these things. And yet he makes an incredibly allegorical story that one would only be able to make if one were dialed into all of these things.
0: Well, there's something to be said for, the subconscious i mean you know and and you know pattern on the wallpaper being you know one of our one of our taglines um even though he was insulated from all of it like 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 fiberglass inside a space blanket insulated yeah
1: the pink panther (laughs) called would like to make a commercial about his surroundings (laughs) you know (laughs) Uh
0: but even even with the extent to which he was insulated from it like Mm -hmm. He had to see the headlines, in the newspapers. He had to. That's true. He was a reporter. He was. He was. Yeah. Not a great one, but he was a reporter. Mm-hmm. And um, or he's not well known for his reporting. I should right. say. Um, and and certainly, even though he was, you know, the again upper class twit. I, I just I, you know the, the ultimate mm-hmm. um, dilettante. Yes. You know. Um. He was still surrounded by people who who would have been very, very heavily concerned about his mother-in-law. For instance, his mother-in-law. And his father-in-law. His (laughs) His father-in-law. Um and uh, you know, everybody, everybody else in in the extended social circle, like his immediate social circle was writers and theater people, but you know, beyond that. Anytime he went to a family function, mm-hmm. friends of the family who were all, you True. know, industrialists and upper middle class and above kind of people, they'd all and be reformers deeply... on,
1: on his wife's side, yeah, yeah,
0: and, and, and activists yeah. on his wife's side. Um, you know, w- one way or another, that would have been the topic of conversation, that would have been stuff that was going on, yeah, valid. You know, that would have been on everybody's minds, so you know, he he was not involved in any of it. He did not make any direct kind of statements that have survived right. for us to read about any of it. But, or if he
1: did, my research didn't yield that. I mean, I am by no means yeah. an L. Frank Baum scholar. And there, I met somebody when I was 24, 25, who yeah. was getting a PhD in studying L. Frank Baum really oh yeah and and they were not the only one like it is a whole field it's kind of like being a walt whitman scholar like there's a
0: lot of them or a you Poe know? scholar yeah so which has its own you know yeah uh, controversies yeah. And, and issues but yeah so. So, all right. Yeah. yeah I mean, you but, know, if there's but in my right research, there who, who knows anybody who's done that research, like, by mm-hmm. all means, please hit us up on Twitter. And let yeah, us know. Just, oh, yeah. No, he he actually, he like said some shit. Yeah. Like, Send me a you know, picture of the said.
1: diary page where he's like, I cannot fucking believe these people did this in this place. You know, like, yeah. let me know. That's, yeah. that's fine. Because otherwise I've got him making hamburgers, which are actually chickens. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> That will
0: always stay with me. The ultimate dilettante. Yeah, really, I'm just saying. <laughs> like it's like it's like breeding sheep that
1: are called emu. You know, like it just it's weird. Yeah. So anyway, his wife Maud never yeah. had a daughter. They only okay. had boys. Yeah. Her brother Thomas and Thomas's wife Sophia gave birth to a lovely baby girl in June. 1898. So I'm going to go back just a little bit. Okay. Her name was Dorothy Louise Gage. Okay. Now there are those who say that the name Dorothy was simply a popular name at the time of the publication of this book. And that's possible though in my research, it never cracked the top 10 of girls' names until 1903, well after his book. Mm. That doesn't mean it wasn't still popular. I mean, shit, you take the name Damien, it has never cracked the top 10. Uh, yeah. but in 1977 it was the 210th most popular name and there were four kids in my eighth grade class all of us named Damien no kidding no kidding and and really just, yeah just for fun I decided to deep dive a little bit on my own name uh <laughs> it, it, it peaked in 77 okay uh, and it didn't get any more popular for the next 20 years and through the 80s it dipped quite a bit from the, mm-hmm. the peak at 210th most popular okay. Uh, but in 1997, it dropped back to 206th in 2012, it cracked the top 100 for the first time since its debut at 942nd in 1952. Wow. (laughs) For two years, it remained the 98th most popular name, uh, after that. And then it hasn't been under three digits since. Okay. I think it has a lot to do with a point guard in, uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, on the trailblazers named Delia,
0: uh, okay yeah that okay. i can see that
1: yeah but back yeah. to dorothy louise gage yeah. yeah yeah now dorothy Gale, dorothy gage right yeah um she was by all accounts a sweet little thing with whom Maud was absolutely smitten i mean this was a girl this was a girl that she did not have to throw in a barrel to show why you shouldn't do that to a cat
0: she mm-hmm. didn't have to
1: suspend yeah. this child from the second story window, window by her ankle to show why you don't throw cats from windows. Um, a beautiful, perfect, lovely little girl, one who could grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer so she could carry on what Maud had stopped at mm-hmm. and what Ma- mm-hmm. uh, grandma had, had wanted.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Unfortunately, Dorothy Louise Gage died on November 11th, 1898 from something called congestion of the brain.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh my God, I cannot even imagine. Yeah. Uh, I now, mean, ba- for for like the whole family, but yeah. But, oh,
1: lord. Now, back then, child mortality was not super rare. Yeah. But like we've spoken before, it does not make it any less devastating. Yeah. Um. Now, this devastated Maud, the aunt of this child, right? Not the not the mom, not the dad, but the aunt. Mm. It devastated her to the point of needing medication. Now, evidence suggests that Frank, because he loved his wife so, because he didn't have much in the way of practical skills, he did the only thing that he knew how to do to console his beloved heartbroken wife. He changed a little boy who got pitched from a cyclone into a world that he told his children about into a girl named Dorothy Gale, immortalizing the niece that they had lost. And there's a fair amount of debate about whether or not this was so Given that he used the name Dorothy in a story that he'd written in 1897 as well, so before that child was born, Mm -hmm. all this, all the same, like it 100% sounds like something he would do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it totally makes sense. And you know, going back to the name Mm -hmm. Dorothy, um, it occurs to me that I, I had a great aunt Dorothy, my my grandfather's younger sister. Okay who would have been born around about
1: the tens or teens or
0: uh, actually earlier probably okay. just before the just before like 1907 1908
1: yeah by then it's starting yeah. to pick up in popularity yeah yeah and it's it's always kind of hovered okay. um yeah it, you know it, it hovers through the movie and then it gets more popular and then it drops off in mm-hmm. about the 70s. Now money from Oz had not come in yet in 1900. Uh, royalties were due in January of 1901. Okay. And Maud insisted that Frank approach his publishers and ask for an advance on those royalties. Uh, because, you know, they're still living a little bit hand to mouth despite the incredible okay. success. It's like, okay, you've got incredible success and by the way, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, now they granted it and he took the check. He said thank you very much, put it in his pocket without looking. And of course, he came home, and Maude was ironing one of his shirts, uh, and he gave her the check. He's like, "Here you go," and that's that's what he does, right? He yeah. always does that, right? Yeah. She was gobsmacked at the amount on the check to the point where she burned his shirt. Um, <laughs> they'd been expecting a hundred dollars, which would have been thirty three hundred of our dollars, which yeah. is yeah, pretty good, sizable, sizable check. That's more than Christmas, you know? Yeah. She found that the check was for $3,432.64, which in our dollars would be $115,000, $595.96. Remember that scene in The Jerk? 100s macarinos.
0: (laughs) Wait. Okay. <laughs> no, it's fifty say, big ones. Fifty big 50 ones. Fifty big ones. Yeah. yeah. Um. How? How? Uh. Say that number for me again in modern dollars. 100- fifteen
1: thousand five hundred ninety-five dollars and ninety-six cents. One dollar and
0: nine cents. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah. yeah. No. No wonder she burned one of his shirts. Uh huh. <laughs> it's it's a miracle she didn't break her foot dropping the iron right like, oh my god so
1: now <laughs> you get an advance on this money right you're gonna get it the next month anyway yeah right so it's not yeah. like you're even like okay yeah. i really i financed you know next year with this yeah 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 so you get an advance by by a month being El frank Baum, what are you going to do with that money absolutely follow up this massive success with this book and with all this money with an attempt to put it into theater
0: oh shit really
1: yeah so he writes the the play and it actually was pretty successful ending up on broadway for three different extended runs um it opened first in chicago in 1902 under the name the wizard of oz Okay. That's the first time that title was used because previously it was the wonderful, right? Yeah. Uh, it differed quite a bit from the children's book because Baum was seeking to entertain adults this time with the, a musical play because he's still smitten with the idea of a musical.
0: Mm, yeah. Okay.
1: Royalties from the musical play paid for a six month tour of Egypt, Greece, Italy, Northern Africa, France, Switzerland um, for Frank and Maud. Like. <laughs> i I love these two like they go to egypt greece italy northern africa france and switzerland they're on a caesar tour (laughs) kind of yeah yeah i mean they're going out they're going in order too um you know plus north africa but like yeah they that's that's what they do with the royalties from this so he's starting to pull like this is the beauty of being a creative i've heard Uh, yeah um
0: wow now, when, when you manage, yeah. when you manage to find something that hits the zip geist like that, Oof. Jesus,
1: and, and Ow. you milk it as hard as you can because this is America. And that's exactly what he does. He writes 13 more books based in the land of Oz. Yep. All 14 of his Oz books were bestsellers. And you can imagine he got in pretty deep into the history the topography and the politics and the cultures of Oz. Cause what the mm-hmm. hell else are you going to do? Yeah. And at the time, uh, reviews were pretty favorable from the New York Times quote. The book has a bright and joyous atmosphere and does not dwell upon killing and deeds of violence. Enough stirring adventure enters into it, however, to flavor it with zest. And it will indeed become strange if there be a normal child who will not enjoy the story. Okay. Now it's going to hit different in 1986 in Tennessee, because always Tennessee, a, a group of parents sued to have it removed from the curriculum. One parent said, quote, I do not want my children seduced into godless supernaturalism. What? Well, there's a wizard, you see, and a witch. Okay. Yeah. Um, successful children's book that is like 80 plus years old. Now. 80
0: plus years old. And and now
1: you're so to get it now, out. The... Now,
0: now yeah. you're right. Okay. Yeah.
1: Others objected okay. to the equality between male and female characters. Like, that's the problem. (laughs) It's like, do you know what public education is for? And actually, they've proven since then that, yes, they do. And that's why they're trying to dismantle it. Mm. Um, Others objected that there were talking animals. You you
0: understand? It's a children's book. Nope.
1: Can't have talking
0: animals. It's a a fantasy.
1: Nope. Bears do not talk. Bears attack children for making fun of a bald guy.
0: Stay in your lane it's a fairy tale nope it's
1: i don't want no tales about gay tales (sighs) yeah and they objected that human attributes weren't simply god-given but actually developed by the people themselves
0: (laughs) which i'm just like uh (laughs)
1: like oh my god uh... The judge ruled that they could have their kids exit the class when the Wizard of Oz was being discussed in the classroom. This was the compromise. So you, mm. you want your kid to stay dumb, go ahead. Step outside. It's fine. Yeah. So I want to examine the two aspects of the story that I find most fascinating because eventually I'll need to make my way over to the thesis of this. That the movie was indeed a prophecy while the book was equal parts allegory and fay story. Yeah. So that that is the thesis. Uh Baum himself said that the reason for the animals speaking, for instance, the cowardly lion in Oz was because it was a fairy kingdom. So I I think I've hit yeah. hit, hit the part that it's at least part fay. Yeah. I, I think you know, and I'm yeah. not gonna, yeah.
0: I'm well, not it's, gonna yeah, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, I'm not going to dive into the later books wherein he clearly states uh, that it's all a fairyland because that would be too easy. So I'm just going to stick to the first book, Um, even though I can literally just, you know, it's kind of like being the lawyer uh, who's trying to uh, point out that the cops are guilty in 1992. is like, ladies and gentlemen, I refer you to Sony. Here they are for 83 seconds on film beating this man. Yeah like open and shut case, one would have thought, Yeah, but so I'm not going to go that easy. I'm going to, I'm going to just make, make this one book sweat a little more. Um, We know that Baum hadn't meant to write 14 books, by the way, as evidenced by his sixth book in which he meant to seal off the Emerald city from all the rest of the world for good. But seeing how unpopular that was, he reneged on it because they got a lot of letters saying, no, Um, And he went on to write eight more books that were also bestsellers. So this mythos that he created grew organically at first. Add to that the fact that he didn't write the second book until he got thousands of letters from kids asking for more. And since in 1904, he and Maude were looking at financial difficulty again. So for that, among other reasons, I'm only going to focus on The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Okay. Okay? Because there's a lot of other things that go into it. Now, although he clearly pulls off or pulls on this stuff and develops it further in the later in the books, uh, the denizens of Oz resembled humans, uh, but also had the characteristics of the Wee Folk. Uh, there are solitary and group ones. Mooj the magician, the or on stuck up on Mooger Mountain, for instance, but also the occupants of Shuttertown, Sapphire City, where I think people can actually sprout wings if they eat the special pear. Um. Okay. Munchkin village. Yeah. So so just taking a look at Wonderful Wizard of Oz, Dorothy is a young girl. Yeah. Okay? So you immediately have the child of abdu- that abduction aspect. Okay. Yeah. Speci- specifically of that girl. Okay. Yeah. So boom, check that box. Almost immediately, Dorothy ends up in the munchkin city and attends a banquet and gets kissed on the forehead by the good witch of the north's protector. Yes. So the protection of a counter spell against a witch. Yeah, She is now induced into the fairy lands in two ways And has to embark on a quest to seek an audience With the high fairy king, the wonderful Wizard of Oz In yes. the Emerald City Green being associated, of course, with the Emerald Isle Which was first mentioned in a poem in 1795 by William Drennan Called When Aaron First Rose So obviously there's some ties there Yeah, Because the official color of Ireland has actually always been blue Yeah and the wizard, after receiving her audience, appearing to Dorothy and her party, each as a different representation of himself, by the way. So you got your changeling aspect there. Mm-hmm. The wizard sends her to kill a rival queen, the Wicked Witch of the West. And if this isn't some seely and unseely Scottish shit, um, the seely <laughs> court, the Scottish lowland fairies, seeks favors from humans and helps them. The Unseelie Court, the Highland Fairies, would attack without provocation and, most importantly, was tied specifically to witches.
0: Okay, yes.
1: And when the Wicked Witch sees them coming, she has a single telescopic eye, of course, which, by the way... Baylor. Yes. Uh, Also, evil eye, gry eye sisters, you take your pick. Okay, yeah. Anyway, she sends wolves to tear Dorothy, the twig blight, the construct, and the lycanthrope to pieces.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: you know who else sends dogs to attack people? The Unseelie oh, okay. Court. Okay. They, they call them Yeth Hounds.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. And Dandy yeah, yeah. Dogs. Yes. See, I was thinking you were going to mention the Wild Hunt, and I was going to say, no, that's no. not. Yeah. Okay, but all right.
1: She sends a swarm of black bees, a murder of crows, and a group of slaves who are called the Winkies, yeah. all of whom are rebuffed, And how is that very different at all from the Gabriel Ratchets, uh, the black hellhounds who can shapeshift and make specific sounds as they do so? How are the Winky Slaves that different from the black dwarves and the Duragar And the, I can't say these words because they don't have any fucking vowels. C-W-N-A-N-N-W-N.
0: You untutored heathen. You're a Celt. You can't, okay, it's Welsh. (laughs) Okay, I figured it's
1: Welsh. There's a lot of W's and N's.
0: Kunanun, Kunanun. Oh, I could have done that. Yeah, you. I could have, <laughs> if you just looked at a pronunciation guide. Come on, now. Got a brand to protect. The hounds, the hounds of noon <laughs> Yeah, hounds. Who, by the way, uh-huh. uh huh. In 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 the Mabinosian, um, the the Kunanun are and or, or Anun mm-hmm. is um associated with the underworld and the mm-hmm. land of the dead. Right so
1: yeah there's all the yeah and she's using the murder of crows i mean you've got you know all kinds of things yeah well
0: ravens ravens show up all over all kinds of northern european mythology in in ominous kind of carbingery
1: kind of yeah yeah so and after melting the wicked witch they return to the wizard who turns out to have been a man from omaha this whole time and (laughs) while that's cute and all Uh, regularly fairies would abduct people and trade them out for one of their own in our world. Yeah. So he gives her companions talismans to get them what they want. But as he's leaving in his balloon to go home, Toto wrecks it for her. She then has to quest to Glinda, the good witch of the South. And in the meantime, she helps the flying monkeys to receive their freedom for which their leader gets a golden cap that changes their status from good slave to free. Uh, I'm sorry changes their status for good from being a slave to free. To being free, yeah. yes. This is similar to the Peleus, of course, uh, the felt cap that you yeah. would give to a freedman in Rome, uh, but also to the need for fairies to don some sort of cap to change their status, often going from visible to invisible, but also yes, in okay. other important ways. So the golden cap that's given to each of her friends once uh, to also magic them to where they want to be. Now, eventually she whirlwinds home. She loses her silver slippers and she winds up home with hardly any time having passed in the real world. The difference in time continuity between the worlds is a very well known, although usually it's the inverse of this. Like you don't notice any time passing there. And then when you come home, your five generations gone.
0: You better not get off of your horse because the moment your feet touch the ground, you're going to disintegrate to dust. Exactly.
1: Yeah. But it does bear noting that there's a golden cap, silver shoes, as well as the Emerald City. So why is L. Frank Baum writing fairy stories for kids in 1900? There's been nothing in my research that I could find that showed me that L. Frank Baum particularly loved fairy stories or anything like that. When he was born, America was receiving its largest influx of Irish immigrants, though, due to the British famine. Um, Okay. In the 1850s, nearly a million Irish came over which supplemented the over 700,000 who came over the prior decade, which was a huge increase over the 200,000 who came over in the 1830s. Continuing on from 1861 through 1900, 2 million more Irish came over to the United States. 2 million, 2 million in addition to the other 2 million who'd already come over prior to 1861. That's 4 million out of a total population of 76.3 million Americans. It's a lot of kids. Yeah. And given that compulsory nature of education was being passed state by state from 1852 forward, Mississippi finally came on board in 1917. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) And they've they've managed to stay in last place almost ever since, although sometimes California gives them a run for their money by like closing all the libraries.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: Well, what that means yeah, is that every okay. state had free schools by 1870. And granted, these schools are only in urban centers, but urban centers in 1900 is where fully half of the population lived. And if you're looking at Irish immigrants, they almost always go to urban centers. Uh, this means well, that th- because, because,
0: yeah. because when they came over, if you're going to go out to, to rural anywhere,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you're going to be going out in order to get land, in order to get a farm. Right. If you come over as someone who's in the circumstances of most of the immigrants who came over from Southern Europe, mm-hmm. Italy, uh, uh, Spain, Sicily, all, all the Greece, all of those folks, or if you came from Ireland, mm-hmm. you were coming over without capital.
1: Right. So you kind of were stuck where you were.
0: You Yeah, you you were going to arrive almost certainly in New York. Mm -hmm. And and then it was going to be on you to figure out just exactly like what you were going to do from there. And you didn't have the money to be thinking about, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to head out to the Midwest and, you know. Right. Farm. And i
1: mean there were indenturing systems that allowed you transport that you'd have to work off that got you out oh, to yeah. chicago or got you uh you know out to Ire- or ireland out to san francisco yeah um, that was a very popular place actually for for the irish um and, and the italians i mean yeah absolutely it, um but,
0: but yeah but but based just based on circumstances most of them mm-hmm. are going to be we're going to be in urban areas yeah Which meant their children were going to be attending those public schools.
1: Which means you have a sharp increase in literacy where you previously didn't. And therefore, you have a need for children's books.
0: Okay. And so
1: what do you write so that kids, you know, 5% of the country at this point is Irish. Like fully 5% of the United States was Irish. So it makes sense that he's pulling from that cultural and literary tradition. So, did he mean to write about a fairyland that would appeal to an increasingly Celtic influenced population? No. Did he do so? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, about that allegory. Uh, unlike in the movie that everyone knows, the slippers were silver, silver slippers on a yellow brick road. In 1900, there was a debate raging over how to base the Americans' currency.
0: Those who were already
1: wealthy or had a lot of money owed to them continued to advocate for a gold standard based economy. Those who saw a growing population, the crushing weight of that debt and the possibility of expanding the economy argued for the free silver approach. They wanted to have as much silver currency as was demanded, thereby expanding the money supply so that more people could have access to it. And therefore it was worth less, which meant that your debt wasn't Everything that it took to keep yourself alive. Okay. Unions, populists, industrial workers, western expansionists, and rich people who caught the scent in the wind and who owned silver mines already stood <laughs> to gain quite a bit of this.
0: And who already owned the, the means right. of means of production.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if the money Uh supply expanded, gold would be less heavily sought after and silver would inflate the economy. And with the economy inflated, the debts owed by farmers, especially, but also by urban folks who borrowed on credit, would be able to pay their debts back and have it be less of a percentage of how they feed their families. In short, the grip that creditors, robber barons, and capitalists in general had with the support of Eastern and Midwestern corn farmers and the Republican Party in the East, on the people, uh, had on the people in debt would be less tight. So you do have yeah. groups that are like, no, we got to stick to gold, and sometimes they're yeah. working against their own their own interests. Uh, interests, of course. Uh, but there you have. And then there was a group called the Bimetallists, those uh, who are also called Silverites. They preferred to bring in silver, but to pin its value against gold at one sixteenth of its value. So, which is. I mean that's basically pound to ounce. Okay. So a pound of silver is equal to an ounce of gold. I mean, honestly, D and D does this just with a decimal system.
0: With yeah, essentially. Um, so anyway, talking about gold and silver standard. Oh, I, sure. I, I want to back up a little bit because there's there's actually one of the most famous. Uh, oh, I'm gonna uh, get speeches.
1: There. I'm gonna get there. Oh, okay. Oh, William I'm... Jennings Bryan. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Oh yeah yeah. He it's serves just... two masters in
0: this. Oh. Okay. Oh yeah. So, okay.
1: So, uh, so one sixteenth, right? So that's an ounce to a pound. So having the silver shoes bouncing along the yellow brick road in the land of
0: emeralds, fairy stories.
1: No, in the land of Oz, and Oz is short for ooh Uh, ounces.
0: Oh shit what okay
1: (laughs) now it's a hell of a coincidence if it's a coincidence it's a hell of a good job an allegory if it's an allegory it's one of those things you're like
0: how the Hmm? right only one beer in you can't be blowing my mind like that this (laughs) early god damn it oh
1: man so that could be seen as allegory for bimetal representation
0: it could you, okay yeah so so there's there's an awful lot of stuff in in speaking of children's books uh-huh. um in in alice in wonderland yeah w- one of the theories about alice in wonderland and i i don't know enough right now off the top of my head to know whether it's like no no this is actually confirmed or if it's just like mm-hmm. you know uh, uh i'm gonna let you do that one over overheated <laughs> academics <laughs> But, um, oh darn it, Alice in Wonderland, written by, I'm totally forgetting. Uh, Frank Carroll. Word. Yeah. Uh, Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll.
1: Yeah. Frank Carroll. Uh,
0: yeah, Frank Carroll. Carroll Burnett. <laughs>
1: Carol O'Connor.
0: But but Lewis Carroll. <laughs> Which Lewis would be so Carroll. much better. Yeah. Was just, you
1: be. are a Cheshire meathead.
0: <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Uh, but um, Lewis Carroll was a mathematics professor. Uh-huh. And a lot of the uh, uh, absurdity in Alice in Wonderland is- They're logic uh, puzzles. Well, it's, it's logic puzzles and it's, it, is, it is argued that it was Carol um, essentially creating a children's story, spinning a children's story as a satire of oh. developments that were going on in mathematics at the time. Uh, as he wrote the book i want to say is when mathematicians theoretical you know airy fairy mathematicians started talking Mm -hmm. about things like irrational numbers okay yeah and and that kind of stuff and he was essentially against all of that he he didn't think it was quite cricket (laughs) and and you know the mad hatter right and and like there's there's ways that you can look at Mm-hmm. uh a, a great many of the things in that book and see them as satire of this this kind of divorce from reality theoretical kind of mathematics
1: it's all irrational we're all yeah, mad here yeah, yeah we're all mad here right um
0: additionally um the walrus and the carpenter mm-hmm. um is uh
1: east meets west in terms of religion w-
0: that's that's one possible theory the other one is it's the house of lords and the house of commons oh that would and also it's make a, sense. and it's political satire
1: yeah and because they're still um, devouring us yes, the oysters still,
0: yes pretty much yeah yeah um and so it, it's just it's interesting to me that mm-hmm. you know that's that was that has forever been marketed as a children's book right but it was, but, but if you, if you scratch the surface of it, you find this incredibly cutting satire of (laughs) politics and, and, you know, academia and all of this kind of stuff. Sure. And now that you give me this and what is Oz short for? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Like, like I, I, I I feel like, you know, it, that's, that's, that's uh, like the tagline in, in the prisoner. What is Oz short for? (laughs) Who is number one? You know, right. Um, like <laughs> that's never going to leave my head now. What is Oz short for? <laughs> uh, <laughs> there are two medals. <laughs> um, you know, right. But yeah, yeah. Like, like, like that, that feels like it has to be a coincidence because bomb is a twit, but, right. but it can't be. Right, right. It's too perfect, what the, what the, man.
1: How do we get that exact coincidence? Yeah. So remember, 1900 is only seven years removed from the Great Panic of 1893, which lasted until 1897. And oh, you yeah. remember how unstable things were for Frank and Maud during that time. Oh, for yeah. And that that reliance, that that fight over what kind of metal we're going to use, and that that push toward it has to stay gold, is partly why essentially capitalists who were benefiting from expansion-based economic policies and practices were living on the edge of the bubble, especially the railroads. And as it turned out, the railroads had absolutely overextended themselves. So investors were keen to grab their money, catching the scent of failure in the air. And to do this, many of them went to the banks to pull their money out. Now, of course, banks begin to fail due to these runs. Yep which made banks less likely to extend credit to farmers and more likely to call in debts from those who'd borrowed from them to be able to pay their members and on and on it went. And you, you remember when they were in, uh, uh, where was it? South Dakota. Yeah. What happened to his business, right? Oh yeah. Um, Collapsed. Yeah. And so pretty soon the economy was fairly crippled and people were left owing a lot of money and getting foreclosed on. This is Mm. through the mid 1890s. And this leads to a massive upheaval politically, which shifted how Republicans and Democrats appealed to the voters and made way for some very effective populist candidates. It also led to and was presaged by several brutal crackdowns on workers demanding more economic parity with their bosses, including the Homestead Strike, the Pullman Strike and the Haymarket Massacre. Yep. workers were rising up and usually getting gunned down by agents of the government uh, or thugs privately paid like the Pinkertons politicians had to start appealing to agrarianists as well as industrialized workers. And the Republicans were largely on the side of capital though. There was still plenty of leftover goodwill due to their initial plank of free labor, free soil, free men. Yeah. Still populists like William Jennings, Bryan were elevated during the panic. Brian was the consummate Democrat populist from the Midwest. He held office as a legislator from Nebraska. He keened away from the Bourbon Democrats who were Northerners and some Southerners who wanted to limit the size of the federal government. He said, no, it should be expended. He threw in his lot as a legislator with the other group. They didn't have as cool a name, uh, but they sided largely with the agrarian concerns of the growers and the farmers in the South and the Midwest. There was lots of federal intervention to keep those people going since they grow our food. And he saw that and he's like, we need to keep these people afloat. And I'm
0: important. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now he lost a bid for Senate in 1894. Cause back then um, we actually didn't just keep pe- voting in the incumbents. Um, in fact, you had about a 50% chance of keeping your seat every time at most. Wow. On average. Yeah. Now I mean, again, there were some guys like Sumner that absolutely uh, you know, Push that average upward, but there are other guys who, uh, was it Davy Crockett? Remember, Mm -hmm. he gets voted out and he's like, Well, I'm going to Texas, you can go to hell. (laughs) Like, yeah, you know, now he lost his bid for Senate in 1894, but he took his popularity on the road uh, really took his popularity on the rails and he began promoting free silver to all who'd listen and to many who wouldn't. Uh, He made enough money with his speech making that he actually didn't even have to practice law. Essentially, He was a podcaster. Some of them make money at this. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. In 1896, he ran for president uh, and he was part of the wing of Democrats whose plank included repudiating Cleveland for his failures to secure economic security for most Americans and for blocking the move toward free silver. So he said, no, we we absolutely don't stand for Cleveland. He didn't do these things. Fuck him. All right. Now, most importantly, it was at the 1896 Democrat National Convention that he delivered his cross of gold speech. This gave him the nomination, ultimately, but he didn't actually stretch out to do that. Um, at this time, most of the Democrat frontrunners for the nomination were Midwesterners. So he's one of many. Okay. Brian was from Nebraska. Horace Boys was from Iowa. John G. Carlisle from Kentucky. Adlai Stevenson, the first, was from mm-hmm. Illinois. He was the grandfather to the Adlai Stevenson that my dad hates so much from episode one. (laughs) Yeah. Joseph Blackburn, also from Kentucky, and Henry Teller from Colorado. The Democrat plank ultimately included the following mission statement regarding money. Quote, we demand the free and unlimited coinage of both silver and gold at the present legal ratio of 16 to one without waiting for the aid or consent of any other nation. We demand that the standard silver dollar shall be a full legal tender, equally with gold for all debts, public and private. And we favor such legislation as will prevent for the future of the demonetization of any kind of legal tender by private contract. Okay. So no, no loopholes. Silver is good. Brian's cross of gold speech contains the following excerpts. uh, And this one uh, highlights the Midwestern focus on the difference between the rogues and the fighters that we saw in Ohio uh, Mm -hmm. in the 1870s quote and by the way, I found a couple versions of him actually recorded. Um, oh really yeah you can you can find these uh, okay. because they had the you know clickety clackety
0: oh yeah, yeah back cylinders yeah.
1: and they've some people have taken great pains to digitally recreate them. Oh wow because you can measure yeah. it in like in a CAD program and stuff like that now.
0: Oh yeah. yeah
1: so quote we say to you that we have made the definition of a businessman too limited in its application the man who is employed for wages is a is as much a businessman as his employer the attorney in a county er, in a country town is as much a businessman as the corporation council in the great metropolis the merchant at the crossroads store is as much a businessman as the merchant of new york the farmer who goes forth in the morning and toils all day who begins in spring and toils all summer and who by the application of brain and muscle to the natural resources of the country creates wealth is as much a businessman as the man who goes up on the board of trade or who goes upon the board of trade and bets upon the price of grain. So, fighter, mm-hmm. rogue. Yeah, the miners who go down a thousand feet into the earth or claimed t- or who climb two thousand feet upon the cliffs and bring forth from their hiding places the precious metals to be poured into the channels of trade are as much businessmen. As the few financial magnates who in a back room corner the money of the world, we come to speak of this broader class of businessmen.
0: Okay. Definitely so, yeah. a a really good uh, example of populism in rhetoric.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and you know, I'm hearing it, you know, saying it again, and and I've typed it out a few times and stuff. Um, it it's really interesting to me that. Nixon, 80 years later, 70 years later, is speaking of the silent majority. Mm-hmm. Because Brian is showing like, hey, all of these people working compared to these few who aren't, they're the mm-hmm. same businessmen, right? Brian continually casts the businessman as a gambler and the farmer is an honest fellow. City businessman, he's gambling, he's speculating, he's making deals, he's cornering money. The farmer, the toiler, the the miner, they're all doing an honest day's work. This is some Catonian level shit here.
0: This is this is Jefferson, like mm. sitting up in his grave going, yeah, but wait a minute. That that farmer <laughs> needs to be slightly aristocratic, doesn't he? Right. Like, like, I mean, wait, <laughs> hold yeah. on now.
1: Hey, can I be aristocratic? Can, I mean, y'all can, can I... be yeoman, but I'm going to
0: I'm, I'm right. gonna, like, you know,
1: yeah. He goes, he continues with the distinctions too. He says, quote, the farmer who goes forth in the morning and toils all day begins. Oh, I think I did that part. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. That's the same quote. Now, as he drives it home, uh, he's making uh, the the populist us versus them claim that Mm -hmm. definitely holds the most weight. He says, quote, we come to speak for this broader class of businessmen. Ah, my friends, we say not one word against those who live upon the Atlantic coast, but those hardy pioneers who braved all the dangers of the wilderness, who have made the desert to blossom as the rose, those pioneers away out there, rearing their children near to nature's heart, where they can mingle their voices with the voices of the birds, out there where they have erected schoolhouses for the education of their children and churches where they praise their creator, in the cemeteries where sleep the ashes of the dead, are as deserving of the consideration of this party as any people in this country." It is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in the defense of our homes, our families, and our posterity. We have petitioned, and our petitions have been scorned. We have entreated, and our entreaties have been disregarded. We have begged, and they have mocked when we, when, our calamity, when our calamity came. We beg no longer. We entreat no more. We petition no more. We defy them.
0: All right. Right.
1: And then he finishes with the kind of biblical flourish that would appeal to the agrarian and the Midwesterner. right? Mm -hmm. If they dare to come out into, or if they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, we shall fight them to the uttermost, having behind us the producing masses of the nation and the world. Having behind us the commercial interest and the laboring interest and all the toiling masses we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor, this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold.
0: He was, he was an amazing orator.
1: He was, he absolutely he was
0: truly, truly remarkable. And that is, that is a remarkable flourish. Like the, yeah. the, 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 the biblical metaphor and the parallelism. Yeah.
1: We're Jesus.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Y'all yeah. are Romans. Without
0: without without actually saying that. Yeah. yeah. And you could
1: even say that he's actually picking up a little bit of anti-Semitism there, because by this point, mm,
0: when you when you mentioned in the earlier quote what he said about right. you know uh, a few financiers mm-hmm. controlling things, I'm like, oh, oh Rothschilds? Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Yeah, I, I uh, that's yeah.
1: I know. I'd like to. I tried to write an entire like, podcast that wasn't tying
0: back to like, <laughs> Henry Ford and anti-semitism. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like <laughs> you know, it yeah. is what it is, man. Yeah. I'm like, what are you gonna do? Um, that's American history in a nutshell. Like, yeah. can is there is there any part of this that that racism doesn't touch? No. no, no, no. It's it's all it's all it's all racism.
1: The call is coming from inside the house. Yeah, <laughs> it's like <laughs> well,
0: goddamn. it puts me, it puts me in mind of the quote from, uh, Rosencrantz and Gildenhorn are dead.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Where is the love, blood, and rhetoric school? You can have uh, love and rhetoric, or no, you can have uh, love and blood without the rhetoric. Or uh, blood and rhetoric without the love, but you can't have love and rhetoric without the blood. Blood is compulsory. They're all blood, you see. I like it. <laughs> it's it's yeah. all racism. You see? It's yeah. all white supremacy. You <laughs> it's, see? Like so, you know,
1: all the way down. It's like all, the turtles. All the way down. The <laughs> <laughs> turtles. All
0: the way down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I'm sorry, kids, but no. Like, yeah. This is this is actually why I'm teaching you this because you need to understand that to fucking fix it.
1: Yeah, yeah, because we didn't. Uh,
0: Because every generation before yours has fallen short of the mark.
1: Yeah, we stopped at World War II. Sorry, Uh, sorry. You know, we started after Reconstruction. It's a really narrow band that we did. Yeah, yeah. So now, what's fun is this description that I found of his final words on the speech. Uh, quote: He then placed his hands to his temples, fingers extended. When Brian spoke of the cross of gold finale, he extended his arms to his sides, straight out like a cross, and held that pose for about five seconds, as the audience watched in dead silence. Then he lowered them and went back to his sti- His seat as the stillness held in the audience. At first, Brian later admitted he thought that the speech had failed due to the total silence. He'd gotten a couple five-minute applause breaks earlier on the speech. Oh, wow. Yeah. But before he could reach his seat, he was mobbed, raised up on everyone's cheering shoulders, and paraded around the hall. After nearly half an hour of this, this this frankly weird orgy of lifting the fat Nebraskan up on your shoulders and going all over... With no air conditioning. He retired to his hotel room and <laughs> awaited the convention's vote. It took five ballots before he took the clear lead, and he. but he ended up the nominee without the vote of the pro-gold Democrats, many of whom just went home. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Like, now, all right, we're out.
1: Yeah, fuck Clearly. Like, Clearly,
0: nobody wants us here. Fuck all of you. We're yeah, leaving.
1: or or I can't believe I'm not gonna stand for this. I will not be a party. to this. Oh, yeah, well, I think it was more some of that.
0: combination, yeah. some well, some combination thereof.
1: Now i found nothing to indicate that L. Frank Baum was in support or against the free silver. But did I mention that the Democratic National Convention was held in Chicago in
0: 1896? <laughs> he's, he's, he's major event adjacent. As yeah, always, always <laughs> like he's it's, it's, it's like like, uh, right. like sharp always manages to make it to every major battle of the Peninsula Campaign, right? You know, only he's a fictional character, and there's like you know compelling right. compelling storytelling reasons for that. This is just no, this is historical fact. He was, yeah. just, you know, he was down <laughs> the street, yeah. Like the fuck, how do you do that? Right, and how do you miss it? Like, yeah, You know, we, well, I'm sure he did you know, again, and
1: that's the thing. He didn't miss it, but he clearly, again, he's, he loved being a dad so much. Yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, like, I, I don't know if you remember where you were for January 6th, but I was at home teaching my students. And if I didn't have it on right there in front of me, my mm-hmm. entire world was just in a zoom box. Oh yeah. Well, I could yeah, have missed here. the whole thing and same. then heard about it after. Yeah. So now the Chicago Tribune wrote praisingly of this speech, of course, Brian ends up losing the election in November to William McKinley, who specifically courted corporate votes and efforts due largely to a split in the Democratic Party that Mm -hmm. could have made the difference for Brian and possibly for the Philippines and for Cuba. Although there's some interesting scholarship on Brian and that very issue. I'm not here for that today. Uh, However, in 1900, it was literally a rematch. And this time it's over imperialism. Yep. So Baum lived in a world where the convention had been held in Chicago, where he lived, and had seen a second presidential campaign come and go with the very same issue at stake. It's safe to say that such things were definitely in the air, and his use of a young Kansas-born farm girl letting Silver lead her back to the safety of her farm is pretty well on the nose. Okay so now there's
0: there's an anvil there the question is was it a conscious one or an unconscious one right now let's talk about the that's emerald an city an anvil.
1: yeah okay that is let's talk about the emerald city Yeah. the easy one is obviously that the the gold is shown by the yellow brick road and it's the road to the white house right and okay. the emerald city is a stand-in for washington dc and it just makes it's emeraldy and fairy-y okay and All you right. can you know i mean it it, it doesn't have to be okay. you know
0: You know what I mean? Like the allegory doesn't have
1: to be so not clever.
0: Yeah. And the allegory doesn't have to be perfect. Right. Yeah.
1: So you could say that Emerald City is DC and that the wizard could easily be the president and the man behind the curtain could be the industrialists really operating things. You could do that. Or you could go a bit deeper and get a little stranger. Emerald is green and the greenback movement making money no longer specie but fiat could be the Emerald City. Mm, okay in that case she's being led astray naively going toward paper currency but then realizing that silver isn't what or realizing that it's silver that's going to bring her home the wizard the wizard then is every conniving and lying politician and the good witches become the publicity machines including the press that continue to fool and lie to dorothy in this case the cyclone that lifted up her house was the panic of 1893 or even the depression of 1873 upheaving farmers homes and dropping them into this current monetary crisis it could be it's sweaty it's very sweaty it's
0: it's you know yeah. I, there's there's a lot more there's a lot more evidence for mm-hmm. um, Alice in Wonderland being about you know il- irrational mathematics mm-hmm then, then I f- I feel like this is this is very much a a an an allegory hunting for yes hunting for a match. I I think yeah. I think um I think taking it that far. I agree. I agree. stretches it to the point of me being like, hey, okay, look, you know the what is Oz short for thing. Like, okay, I, I, you have me there. <laughs> sure. But but all of that is a bit
1: much now if i'd done it in a reverse order maybe it would have been more compelling because i did hit you with the the most glaring obviously clever one first but yeah but yeah i'm with you i'm with you yeah emeralds and green green greenback and there was a greenback movement that was a thing yeah and silver was ultimately you know what led her back so it's still pro silver pro anti-greenback not pro silver anti-gold
0: yeah, yeah. I, I I feel a bit more like the the allegory for mm-hmm. Oz. Okay, is is a little bit less like oh hey, and now we're going to talk about monetary policy. <laughs> hey <laughs> kids, I've,
1: have you heard I, about the World Bank?
0: <laughs> yeah, hey, <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like you know, based on my own memories of of reading the book, having the book read to me as mm-hmm. a kid. Oz is more an allegory of any kind of glittering metropolis any kind right. of big city any yeah. kind of you know the 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 urban fantasy land that it's right. like oh yeah no, but you got to keep the glasses on right because if you right. take the glasses off you realize that no it's all just you know lead crystal and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know every everything isn't actually green yeah you know yeah. um and and there is a very strong, um, agrarian, yep, bent to it. There is, there is. Um, which is, I think, again, the, the Greenback movement
1: would have fucked the the farmers. Yeah. So, well, but yeah, okay. I, but, I, I get you. I, know, get you. And, I get you. And
0: and I think there's a certain level of of just you know basic cynicism slash satire about oh yeah, and right. the wizard isn't really a wizard. He's you know a carny.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's you know, just a, a what the twist like, kind of know. moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Or it could be a reference to the Theosophic Society, specifically the Theosophical Society to which Baum belonged, which had started in 1875 and to which Matilda Jocelyn Gage also belonged. In that case, the Emerald City is a reference to the Emerald Tablet, which is an Islamic alchemical text. And the whole story of Dorothy's wanderings through Oz or her ascension into learning cool shit and becoming enlightened—that seems too far-fetched for me.
0: That, um, that does seem too far-fetched, <laughs> but I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, like like that's that's way too much of a stretch. But I you really know want it. To that be one. True. That one seems like
1: that's what Supernatural was going for. Yeah. I've gotten to those episodes. Yeah. So. Yes. um, Definitely. Or. 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 In Chicago. In 1893, there was also a World's Fair that featured a white city. And there were plenty of other Midwestern and upstate New York based references to things that resembled the Emerald City. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me that the Emerald City being the capital of Oz, where the big leader is found, and it's most likely an amalgamation of the classical yet sort of futury vibe of the white city, if you look at pictures of it, mm-hmm. which was credited as the impetus of the City Beautiful Movement, which was a plan to update and beautifully beautify urban centers largely by pushing out marginalized communities out of prime spots and rebuilding it with a new age in mind. And washing
0: oh hey, gentrification by another name. Oh, yeah. I
1: think the guy's um, name was Robert Moses. Yeah, Bob Moses, yeah, the guy who yeah, fucked over yeah. like a lot of New York. Yeah. Um, um yeah. See so See that's, the White
0: City thing. Mm-hmm. I can I can I can groove with too.
1: Again, yeah, cuz he was he it would have been in all the right papers there. Yeah. yeah.
0: And well, and you know, I mean something like the World's Fair. I'm trying mm-hmm. to remember when when his kids were born.
1: Um Oh, uh earlier and then okay. because because you know he writes it in 1900 I think they'd come back to Chicago in I want to see 96 97
0: okay all right um but yeah okay but he is he's living he's,
1: in in rural yeah. areas that are that's the closest metropolis
0: okay so, so
1: and it's the world's fair
0: yeah you know yeah. so I, I you know I, I think I think all of that mm-hmm. I'm I'm again I'm, I'm going to point to um I, I think the the allegory can all be interpreted from it because obviously because of death of the author but also there there were all these things percolating in the back of his head and what wound up on the page mm-hmm. reflected all of it yeah and i'm going to come to at least right now i don't know how mm-hmm. much how mm-hmm. much how much farther your are you're, you're you know, statements about the stuff are going to go but at this point i'm going to come down i'm still coming down on the side of this was not conscious he, he I, yeah he, you know he he was An he was influenced allegory. by all of these things he was his brain was marinating in all of the stuff going on around him yeah and so that's we, and that's how his sense of humor and his imagination yeah tied them you know, together tied yeah. them all together yeah
1: so we've covered Dorothy, we've covered her clothes, we've covered the road, and we've covered, covered the Emerald City. Yeah. Now let's look at some of the characters. Let's start with okay. Uncle Henry. Okay. His father-in-law was Henry Gale.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: Henry Gage, right? Yeah. Uh, Henry was similar to Frank in that he was, frankly, yielding to a fairly assertive wife. Uh Okay. Aunt m was definitely an amalgamation of those two men's assertive wives <laughs> yeah. my wife and her mom uh the witches seem to have been partially influenced by his respect for the research that matilda his mother-in-law uh had done on witch hunting throughout history mm. uh yeah and if you remember um you might not uh, but Kentucky and my mom and dad can tell me exactly the year. But Kentucky had killed someone for witchcraft within the same decade as L. Frank Baum writing The Wizard of Oz. It was like 1893 or 95 or some shit.
0: Oh shit!
1: No, there was a historical marker for it. I have a picture of it somewhere in my in my computer.
0: They executed somebody for for witchcraft. fucking witchcraft. Yes, in the 1890s. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Carry on. So, so Christmas,
1: the scarecrow, clearly the American farmer who's been rendered completely impotent by the changing nature of commerce. He can't even scare a crow. Um, he's also deathly a fate of fire for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and notably, he's got no brain, but in fact, he's capable of all kinds of clever thinking, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, no, the, the, the stereotype. He, he does homespun. not recognize. He yeah. does not recognize his own intelligence, and everybody else thinks he's a dumb hick.
1: Right, but in fact, he's he's homespun wisdom versus that the good old book learning thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Okay.
1: Tin woodsman. A tin woodsman is clearly the American industrial worker, right? Okay. Yeah. He lacks heart because he's been hollowed out by the process of machinery and industry. <laughs> okay. Heading out his insides. Uh, though some would say that these two uh, both actually represent uh, the owning classes of both, um, that is the the Tin Woodsman and the uh, the Scarecrow. Um, I think mm-hmm. their personification definitely makes them much more the everyman for those things, not not the yeah the characterization
0: the, you know. characterization is a lot more everyman-ish in both cases yeah. than it is uh, aristocrat.
1: Right, and the Tin yeah. Woodsman, if you recall, he still has rural roots. I mean, it's in his name. Mm. So yes, his dependence on oil to keep moving is definitely call out to how the industrial worker's job is dependent on foreign trade. Mm. Um, And it both leave him mechanical and without anima. Um, Now, to be honest, I always saw the Cowardly Lion as William Jennings Bryan. All bark, no bite.
0: Okay, I can see that.
1: Big loud mouth, but when it came down to winning, he fucking didn't, you know.
0: Um, okay, but but how yeah. much of that is because Jennings Bryan didn't have the willingness to like participate in debates or stand up and fight for things? I mean, well, it's just know. that he
1: can't win the big game though. Like, okay, well, talks okay. a big game but can't seem to win it, right?
0: Okay, but like, I would I would think that makes him Toto. <laughs> You know, like, sure. no, no, no. He he will he will bark and yap and scare the shit out of anybody he needs to scare the shit out of because there's all the fight in the dog, but there's no size in the dog.
1: Yeah, but this is all size, but no fight. At the end okay. of the day, he can't win the big one.
0: All right, okay. So that's all
1: right. how I always saw him, but okay. we could also say that he is the American soldier. He's dressed okay. up and has nowhere to go after the quick conquest of Cuba. He's also proven completely incapable by the Philippines. Okay. Uh, or you could okay. say that he is a motorcycle. <sighs>
0: nice.
1: The Wicked Witch of the West nice. yeah. uh, could represent the actual pull of the American West, the danger and the lawlessness that it entails. Remember, boom towns were a fairly recent thing. And while Bill Hickok had just been killed in 1876 in South Dakota. The frontier had been declared closed by Frederick Jackson Turner in 1893. So it's possible that the witch, with her command of the flying monkeys, could represent the dangers of the West.
0: Okay. I you know what's what's okay. What I find weird about that interpretation, though, is everything else in this is very clearly an agrarian polemic. Mm-hmm. Like, like if we're, if we're taking all of the other characterizations, Mm -hmm. we're, we're looking at agrarian polemic. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And the thing is, um, to anybody pushing an agrarian polemic, I don't see the chain of logic to, oh, and we need to be worried about the dangers of the West. I would be expecting in an agrarian polemic for Mm -hmm. it to be, you know, the good witch of the West,
1: well, you know that's I mean? if you, yeah. But if you look at expansion westward as being a capitalist scheme and it fucks over the farmers yeah. because now you have spite towns and stuff like care. that. All right. uh, and if you take a look at the monkeys, um, they kind of fit the noble savage trope in the book. And there is some meat on the bone here, given that the not-quite-sympathies that Baum expressed in a number of editorials in different publications years prior to 1900, he wrote sympathetically about Sitting Bull in 1890, and at the same time, he stated that white civilization necessitated genocide. He seems to feel like it's an unfortunate inevitability and said that uh, the massacre at Wounded Knee was unfortunate but likely necessary, quote, the pioneer has before declared that our only safety depends on the total extermination of the indians having wronged them for centuries we had better in order to protect our civilization follow it up by one more wrong and wipe these untamed and untamable creatures from the face of the earth in this lies future safety of our uh, in this lies future safety for our settlers and the soldiers who are under incompetent commands Otherwise, we may expect future years to be as yet full of trouble, with the slur redacted, uh, as those that have been in the past.
0: I want to. I want to interject here. Sure. The interpretation of the cowardly lion as uh-huh. the American soldier. Uh huh. I'm going to do you one better. Oh, good, good. And I'm going to say the cowardly lion is the uh, personification of the higher echelons of the military class. Yeah. Not not the foot soldier.
1: Okay. Yeah. Because everything he's the else king in this, of the forest. Yes. Because You're because right.
0: everything else in this is, yeah. is populist agrarian polemics. Yeah. You're right. He's the generals. He's yep. the the colonels and above. Right. You know, um, especially when when he's pointing out things about you know an opinion of incompetent command, mm-hmm. which you know is reasonable based on yeah Custer
1: you know, party.
0: Well, well, not even you know what. <laughs> here's the thing mm-hmm. Custer is the one we all learn about right because because Custer is the is the obvious example of okay look um I'm not kidding the entire goddamn Sioux nation yeah is down that hill by the river you don't want to fucking go that way yeah whatever now you're full of shit you don't know what yeah. you're talking about just really Custer is you is the in, easiest
1: but... hubris story to tell yes yes yeah.
0: the, the 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 Greek tragedy aspect of Custer's mm-hmm. story are are too good to to let lie. Yeah, but in the wake of the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, there were systemic problems with the with the management uh, and and you know leadership within within the U.S. Army. It was it was it was bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, Custer is the most obvious example. And and I'm just I'm so pissed at L. Frank Mom right now because right up he until was, this point I know he was such he was such an unproblematic cinnamon roll yes and now You're like God damn it. and now he's like well you know we did all this horrible shit before and now we just need to follow it through because otherwise they're gonna come and cut our throats in our sleep it's like d- dude what right like what. I'm I'm I can't even bring myself to swear. I'm yeah. so taken aback. Like, yeah, dude. Um, well, but and
1: and yet he still does the whole noble savage shit. Because if if you look at what he has, the the monkeys say to Dorothy. The head one says to Dorothy, "Quote: Once we were a free people living happily in the great forest, flying from tree to tree, eating nuts and fruit, and doing just as we pleased without calling anybody master." This was many years ago long before Oz came out of the clouds to rule over this land.
0: Yeah. And oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean I mean that even that even sounds like the quotes mm-hmm. from Native American tribes talking about the great father in Washington. Exactly. Like
1: Now it could bro. be. It so and and again bro. allegories are absolutely shoving things together too because yeah. If you really think about what the monkeys do, the flying monkeys do specifically to the scarecrow and to the Tin Woodsman, um, they pull out his stuffing and dent the shit out of the Tin Woodsman in two brutal assaults. Yeah. Um, ultimately, the Wicked Witch could represent bureaucrats who pass laws with little regard to whom they're going to hurt. Um, and, and the monkeys then are the gendarmes that carry those laws out. So it could be that the Wicked Witch is actually a robber baron
0: and the monkeys
1: are Congress.
0: I I don't hate that theory.
1: It certainly gets around the, uh, the, the, the racism the, part. The racism part. <laughs>
0: um, and it does and, fit and, with and the rest could, of it. it. Yeah, and it could be a little column A and a little column B. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, where, where the characterization tropes are infected by the racism, but the allegory is based on you know the the idea of of them being you know right. Congress. Uh- <laughs>
1: now there there may be a more racist component to it after that. No, no. In the 1800s, there was one group that was specifically likened to apes, and their huge amounts of numbers combined with their ability to hurt industrialized workers and farmers, as well as their leader being a witch, could mean that the monkeys represent. Irish immigrants coming oh. to a 1900 city. Oh, because nice there's so him. many, so many cartoons, um, political cartoons. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, you have Neanderthal looking Irishman with the, the Irishman's
1: yeah. beard looking like it's framing the curious George face. Yeah. And he's got, you know, like monkey features like the, the Irish. A lot of oh, people yeah. don't realize. I hate to be the guy It says a lot of people don't realize the Irish were picked on in the same way that black people were picked on. But in this instance, it's so very true. In urban centers, the Irish were much more a plague to the powers that be than black people were in 1900.
0: Well, because there wasn't—you didn't I mean, have the Great talking, Migration if, yet. Yeah, you had to have the Great Migration yet, and and in northeastern urban centers, which was all you know, the biggest cities in the country. Exactly. Again, because the Irish showed up and they didn't have anything. Right, you know, they showed up with shawls on their back, and that was it. Right, they were this influx of, you know, people that. What the fuck are we gonna do with them? Mm -hmm. And you know, they were restive because you know they had to work to try to. They had to. They had to struggle to try to find work. Yep. Um, which would make anybody angry. They were poor, which would make anybody angry, and you know, and and like if New York hadn't established a police department, like, I don't know how many of them would have gotten employed. Right. Uh, oh, you know, that's awful, but it's true. It's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely wrong. true. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a reason they called them paddy wagons. Exactly. Well, the reason both. they called them Irish whales. Yeah, yeah. It's both because of who was, who was, who was driving and who was in it, who was driving and who was in them. But, you know, I mean, you know, there's a reason that, uh, you know, the TV series blue bloods to this day, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, features a family that's, you know, three generations in a row of cops. They're in New York and they're named Reagan.
1: Yeah, there you go. You know, you know like, I mean... There's a reason that Hulk Hogan was called Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Because Vince McMahon Sr. was like, well, we already have an an Italian, we already have a Puerto Rican and New York loves its ethnic heroes. So you'll be Hulk Hogan because mm-hmm. it's an Irish name. Yep. So...
0: There you go. You know, so, and yeah. and... So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. And
1: yeah. now that's that's the allegory. And without ever claiming to write one, in fact, with his own son actually explaining away half of these characters with cute stories about his dad, actually, it's entirely likely that L. Frank Baum didn't actually mean to write one, per our usual. Yeah. Uh, Hi.
0: Um, I'd like to, hey, uh, Frank, I'd like to introduce you to John. over Right. Here. Yeah, congratulations on unintentionally writing a masterful allegory. Good work.
1: Now, at that time, automated storefront window displays in early Chicago could actually account for the man behind the curtain. And at that time, you got to keep in mind that L. Frank Baum edited trade papers for window dressers, which... Until I did this research, I didn't realize there were enough window dressers for a trade paper for it. Uh, The Tin Woodsman was tied to that same fascination with window displays. Every part of the Tin Woodsman could be a metal item sold for household use. The body is a boiler. The hat is a funnel. The stovepipes is the arms and the legs and the face is a saucepan. So could it be that this whole time he's like, I really like the storefront windows? (laughs) Like... Now, yeah. Now here's what, the thing. He, <laughs> did I break you again?
0: We go back to upper class twit,
1: right? Like, but now I'm going to take you back down the, the slope of the sine wave because okay. he, remember he did write a play version, right? Right. In, in which he inserted all kinds of jokes about modern politics in 1902. There's a reference to Teddy Roosevelt, okay, uh, a that guy would who have to be yeah, uh, a guy who'd paid a substitute to fight in the Civil War a guy who joined a non-combat battalion uh, and a guy who managed to be absent when it was actually activated briefly and who'd used his wealth to get McKinley elected twice. Um, That guy's name was Hannah. Um, There was a standard oil reference. Uh, There's all kinds of stuff. Like there's these people that like are tropes, right? So he wasn't totally unaware. He just didn't put anything like that directly and overtly into the children's book. Uh, And the stage version was the first one to use the phrase Wizard of Oz. Like I said before, Toto was replaced by a cow named Imogene. A cow? Yeah. Easier to put on stage. You can have two people in it.
0: Yeah, easier. Okay. All right. A waitress. You don't actually
1: have to have a dog.
0: Right. Okay. A
1: waitress and a trolley operator um, get blown into Oz with Dorothy which actually makes sense in a city because it's a service worker and a mechanic, uh, a mechanic worker. Okay. Um, the wicked witch was entirely missing. Uh, and the whole plot actually revolved around being hunted by the rightful King of Oz. It's weird, but it was a success financially and critically. Um, and that's, I think where I'm going to leave it because in the next episode, I'm going to talk to you about all the fucking movies. Cause it wasn't just one.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I'm 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 primed for this.
1: Yeah. So I mean, this is a big one where you can glean stuff because we talked allegory out the wazoo. how oh, we've bitch. probably beaten it to death, but anything in general, any kind of skein you can wrap around the whole thing.
0: That. Well, number one, mm-hmm. that if you look at anything that was created during any given time period at any point in human history, yeah any any creative work, you are going to be able to find a way to to allegorize it after the fact. That's true. You know, um <laughs> my 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 dad uh for years, like up to when I was in college. And I'm sure if you got him started talking about it today, he'd he'd go on about it. Um when he when he took his first uh literature course in college. Mm-hmm he, he took the bare minimum of lower division English courses and then walked away because it just pissed him off that his professor would not shut up about like how uh, the white whale symbolizes this, that, and the other thing. And okay. And let's look at this scene where the sailors are, you know, all holding the harpoon and all this symbolic, of, right. you know, probably had some homosexual something going on like, whatever. Sure. And, and my dad's like, I read the book and the book is about a fucking whale. Like, like, how do you, like, how do you, and and then he'd go on about, you don't know that that's what you can't get into the author's head. You don't know what that means. And, and like, yeah, you're not wrong, but on the other end, and, and, and. I always have that in the back of my head whenever we're going into these, these you know wild mass guessing epileptic right. trees kind of you know this is an allegory for you know monetary <laughs> yeah. policy and whatever but at the same time like that shit's there yeah what does Oz and stand like, for like you know when you, yeah and <laughs> what does Oz stand for? Uh <laughs> 16 to one apparently but yeah. um <laughs> you know, amongst other things but you know um and and you know aboard a whaling ship you've got you know a 100 guys stuck on a boat for months mm-hmm. at a time some gay shit's gonna happen man yeah. like you know so you know it's, i mean it's... you know
1: the, the the very phallic nature of the weapon they're holding and yet the fact mm. that it's called a poon they're clearly
0: doing some transference <sighs> I want to say I'm not even mad, but I kind of am.
1: Yeah, that's okay. Uh,
0: <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, and and I, I think I'm I'm still I'm still reconciling bomb as as you know largely benign. God damn it, largely hey. benign upper class twit. Sure. With with this potential that hey some of this is actually really deep satire going
1: on here right
0: and you know and his and his and his son apparently you know writing off says no it wasn't he wasn't doing it wasn't. my dad just storefront like windows. He just, he just storefront windows just like storefront windows
1: which is even greater Like <laughs> <laughs> which which like, like god damn it
0: i don't know which one of those things i want to believe more like right. you know he's he's this he's this cinnamon roll who like at night sits down and vents all of his cynicism in, in the symbolism of the background of his children's story. On the one hand, that's amazing. And right. I want to buy that guy a beer. On the other hand, it's no no. He 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 was just, he was all upper class twit through and through. Yeah. Like, you know, watch watch the Bonnie Python skit. That was my dad. Right. Like a hundred percent. And I kind but of also, want to buy that guy a beer. And how pat reliable on the head,
1: Yeah, you know? Yeah. How reliable a narrative is someone's son, though, looking up at their dad. Well, yeah, I mean, I played mm-hmm. Bosnia in a play. I, I think I've told you about this where I was changed to a, a post and beaten 82 times per night um, right. in front of two people having a pancake or a pancake, uh, a picnic. Yeah. Um, I didn't know I was playing Bosnia.
0: <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, okay yeah
1: you know i was just a guy who was chained to a thing so i was not a reliable narrator if somebody's hey what's your play about i i don't know i just i know that i get beat a lot
0: i genuinely don't get it has something to do with human apathy in the face of suffering right
1: oh you mean no no that's that's too easy
0: that's that's weird yes i don't know man yeah (laughs) that's that's too much of an anvil i don't i don't know about that that's that's
1: no that's too that's that's too on the nose oh yeah and then the director told me he's like, "Yeah, I wrote it exactly for that." I was like, "Oh, <sighs> lower class twit." So, <laughs> so, so
0: there you go, yes yeah. gentlemen. It's, it's, yeah.
1: So what you're saying is your dad is perpetually disappointed by your podcast.
0: Um, no, oh, I, okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Um, I, I think he would, he's probably <laughs> consistently bothered by the amount of swearing I do, but, yeah. uh, you know, he knows I'm a pointy headed intellectual. So, sure. <laughs> you
1: know. so like I said, perpetually disappointed. Yeah, All right, well, so
0: what's you reading? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, actually, uh, in a, in a departure, uh, mm-hmm. from, from the usual fair, uh, what I have been doing a lot of reading of, me a second here because i want to properly credit this Mm. uh is um just about every night uh for the last month Mm -hmm. i have been reading to my son uh the picture book dragons love tacos oh it's such a good book by uh, adam rubin illustrated by daniel salmieri Mm-hmm. And I might be mispronouncing Salmieri, but, um, it is, it is a wonderful, whimsical little book about, mm-hmm. uh, Hey kid, if you want to make friends with dragons, tacos are key. Um, and, but. <laughs> but, but very important. Um, you, you need to, you need to lay off the spicy ingredients, right? And, uh, there's a page where it, it tells you what good, good ingredients for tacos are. Yep. And my son always wants me to pause reading so he can point to them and say, tomatoes, check. Lettuce, check. Cheese, check.
1: Very nice.
0: Um, and and um, yeah, it, it is it is a wonderful, sweet, whimsical book um, that that gives you some very practical pointers on yeah. the taco party for dragons. You know he and has so.
1: he's done a number of other books. I don't know if you've yeah. done those darn squirrels, I, no, or the secret pizza party. Oh dear! And All there's right. even a sequel to Dragons Love Tacos. Um, okay. And I think there's one I think called the Ice Cream Machine, but um, it's it's almost like this weird Rashomon children's book. It's kind of fun. Okay.
0: All yeah. right. So. Well, you mentioned Rashomon, so now I'm going to have to look it up because yeah. you know Kurosawa. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> but that that is what I've been reading, and I highly, awesome. highly recommend it. Uh, how about you?
1: Uh, I'm going to recommend something far less saccharine. Uh, it's called Three Ordinary Girls: <laughs> The Remarkable Story of Three Dutch Teenagers uh, Who Became uh, Became Spies, Saboteurs, Nazi Assassins, and World War II Heroes uh, by Tim Brady. Uh, has nothing to do with anything that we've done,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, but it's just I, I really, I needed, I needed something in my, in my headspace? reading. Yeah, in my headspace that that was about badass women. So okay. I went with that. Um, however, if you're interested, because we are going to be doing movies. Uh, of The Wizard of Oz, which invariably means Judy Garland and her life. I strongly also recommend uh, Get Happy, The the Life of Judy Garland um, by Gerald Clark. Uh, It's a pretty good biography.
0: Remarkable title for a biography of Judy Garland.
1: Uh, Well, that's kind of the point. Yeah. Mm. Uh, So I recommend that and of course watching The Wizard of Oz. So about a week because next week we are going to do the movies.
0: All right. Cool.
1: Well, for A Geek History of Time, uh,
0: I'm Damian Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, follow the yellow brick road.